Are you tired of men monopolizing mansplaining? Luckily, we are here to provide relief from the mindless drone of men explaining what it means to be a proper lady, and instead are here to explain what it means to be a proper man. Welcome to Mansplaining, an explication of hypermasculinity through popular culture. I'm Brittany Walker. And I'm Kay Grossman. Today we're going to be discussing the 1987 film Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon was directed by Richard Donner. Uh, You might know Richard Donner from The Goonies or my favorite Bill Murray movie, Scrooged. It had a $15 million budget and drew $120.2 million in the box office. As you can tell, it's super successful. And because of that success, uh, it spawned a very popular series of Lethal Weapon movies. Uh, Three movies followed the movie that we're discussing today. It was written by Shane Black right after graduating from college. I feel underaccomplished. I... Also feel underaccomplished. <laughs> Fuck him and Lin Manuel. I mean, they're ruining what my late twenties barometer for success is. <laughs> um, the purpose of the film was to create an urban western uh, that was heavily inspired by Dirty Harry, which I think it totally does that through the character of Riggs. Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so th- go ahead. Sorry, I think um, Mel Gibson had been in some movies, but I think you could say that this is his most was his most popular. Um, I couldn't help but watch the entire movie thinking, did he hate Jews here? Yeah. Like, I, in this in this, in this, this scene, was he thinking about how much he hates Jews? Like, when he's, like, kicking someone's butt, like, is he imagining? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's kind of gross now. Well, no, it is. And, like, I kept imagining, like, is he thinking about Jews to fume, like, all of this anger and hatred and, like... You know, thinking about method acting. Which is funny, because, like, <laughs> Mr. Jonathan is blonde hair and blue eye, but, you know. Yeah, no. Which Any- you think would be, like, the perfect specimen for him. So- Anyways, off topic. <laughs> uh, Mel Gibson, we do not endorse anything Mel Gibson said post this movie, after this movie, except for maybe Braveheart. Um, yeah. Except for Braveheart. Braveheart, which, as you guys don't know, but now will know, is one of my favorite movies of all time. All right, so Lethal Lethal Weapon, uh, made in 1987, is an interracial buddy cop movie. And as you can already tell, it features Mel Gibson playing the character of Martin Riggs and Danny Glover. No relation. As Roger Murdoch. The movie begins with the death of a woman, the daughter of Roger Murdoch's friends, Michael Hunsaker. The death is first announced as a suicide, but is later determined to be a murder after it is found that drugs that led to her suicide was laced with drain cleaner. That's unpleasant. And maybe don't do drugs. Heather, I mean, Heather's is the same thing. Suicide via drain cleaner. Or Heather's murder via drain cleaner. was a cleaner. brilliant movie. Oh, no. I, I just... It's kind of a recurring theme in the 1980s. No, it is. I think it's to ward us off the drug. <laughs> the, <laughs> the dangers of heroin and cocaine. <laughs> also, Drano. <laughs> Jano, very dangerous, especially when you have, like, psycho friends. Yeah, anyways. (laughs) Meanwhile, Riggs is transferred to a homicide unit and partnered with Roger Murdoch, a veteran in the homicide unit who is celebrating his 50th birthday. He's too old for this shit. I was going to say that, but you stole my line. You can go ahead. Say it. It feels good. I'm too old for this shit. I say that everyday teaching. (laughs) (laughs) It's just repeated in my life. Every single time a kid says something that I don't understand, which is frequently because language is always changing. You do too much. Like I'm too old for this shit. (laughs) I still have 20 years until I can retire. Unlike Murdoch. 
After following leads surrounding the death of Amanda, Hunsaker's daughter, it is revealed that Hunsaker has been involved in a heroin smuggling operation run by the former Special Operations Forces from Vietnam War, known as the Shadow Company. It is revealed that Amanda was killed after Hunsaker's attempt to rat out the operation to Murdoch. Shadow Company takes Murdoch's daughter, and afterwards all hell breaks loose, and Rig promptly, as I would like to say, fuck shit up. Uh, fun fact about Riggs in this movie, he kills 15 people through various uh, ways, including shooting people in the chest, in the head, putting them in a wrestling arm lock, and choking him to death like it is WWE and he is The Rock, <laughs> which is my favorite way that he kills someone. In the next 30 minutes, following the abduction of Murdoch's daughter, there is a car chase, a torture scene, a karate hand-on-hand combat fight and a shootout, and it ultimately ends in the death of Gary Busey, R.I.P., the head of the Shadow Company. Dun, dun, dun. The movie doesn't exactly end here, but we'll get to the rest later. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting in this movie um, is that it's a portrait of depression. So pretty much the first time we see Mel Gibson's character, he's living in squalor, like contrasting to his partner, to Roger Murdoch's, like lives in a nice house in the suburbs, you know, family, nice bathroom, very 80s bathroom. So 80s. I really appreciate the mirror that he can look at himself while taking a bath. Look at your full glory. It also like creates like a really good shot when the family member comes in for his 50th birthday anniversary because it's like focused on him, but you see the reflection of his family. No, I mean like from a cinematography perspective, yeah. it's really nice. But in contrast, like you have this op- Maybe not opulent, but definitely upper middle class home. But then you see Martin Wiggs and he has, he lives in a trailer. He has a dog. I like how you're saying that as if like only plebeians have dogs. Like he has a dog. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. As opposed to a yacht. (laughs) Well, that's true. Um, true. Murtaugh does have a yacht, not a dog. (laughs) As most, like, as, as most police officers can afford a yacht. I mean, he's been a detective for a while. I guess. Damn, but government work is making too much. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it down. But even from even before we see Wiggs attempt to commit suicide, we see kind of this image of hopelessness. So the first time we see Wiggs in action, he's um, busting a drug cartel. And one of the criminals has a gun to his head and, is, and he's just like, what are you going to do? Shoot me? Go ahead. I don't, I mean, I could do it myself. You could do it for me. I don't really care. Like, He's a he's like very much a loose cannon, and it's not just reckless like young man's recklessness. It's he has nothing left to live for. Um, and then really jarringly, there's two suicides in this movie, and probably the first fifteen minutes or two images of suicide in the first fifteen minutes. Wiggs doesn't go through with it, but there's this really jarring dark scene where Wiggs has a gun in his mouth and puts it to his head, puts it back in his mouth, thinks about it. This it's all over. Or the backdrop of cartoons. And he's weeping and crying over pictures of his dead wife. We don't know how Wig's wife died. Um, but you can see his hopelessness. And I think that I think that's really jarring because I can't think of another movie that shows depression in, in kind of such raw and um, just visceral terms. And I think it's especially jarring right after watching Top Gun Mm -hmm. and seeing that depiction of depression and grieving. And, you know, we talked about this in the podcast where people were saying, you know, you need to get out of it. But the person who's telling Riggs to get out of it is Riggs himself. Yeah, Riggs is saying, this job is the only thing I have. Don't you think I think about shooting myself every single day? 
but this job is what keeps me going instead of it's it's an internal motivation instead of like be an expectation being forced upon him as it was with Maverick. Absolutely. And I think the movie does a really good job aside from the plot of showing this depression. I was talking about how much I love the soundtrack. I'm always focused on the soundtrack. Um, this soundtrack was uh, written by, not written, but, you know, uh, controlled by Michael Kamen, who also did the soundtrack for Highlander, which also has a fantastic <laughs> soundtrack. Um, Highlander will actually, we're going to have a birth, our birthdays are soon. Yes. Uh, we're, I'm t- you're, am I older than you? Yeah, you're year older than oh, me. Oh, I'm turning 26. Uh, Kay's turning 25, and we're doing a birthday episode where we get to watch our two favorite action movies, and, and mine is going to be Highlander because it's my favorite. And I think it's, mine is going to be Crank 2. Yeah. I think. They got Eric Clapton to do the theme music for Riggs, which I think is super appropriate. I mean, you have this blues musician who's playing – this, you know, sad, grieving, you know, like guitar riff behind, you know, this backdrop of Riggs. And I don't know, I, I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed some of the camera shots that I don't know, I, I can't actually recall if the camera was actually visually shaking. But the way it was shot, and the way that Mel Gibson was framed as he was acting manic made everything seem unstable. It was yeah. like we we're in the head of Mel Gibson. Well, hopefully not in the head of Mel Gibson, <laughs> um, but of Riggs. And and I just think that they did a really good job looking outside of just the plot and the dialogue and even, you know, Mel Gibson's great method acting to really depict the depression and the sadness of this character. Yeah, it's actually pretty complex. Um but I think it's funny that in this movie, they also, this they're kind of self-referential about the emotions in it. Um, maybe not intentionally. No, it's super meta. Um, it is. Because at one point, um, Surgeon McCaskey, he's another surgeon, uh, sergeant um, in the department, I think someone about on equal rank with Roger Murtaugh. Um, and McCaskey is talking about this new man in the 80s. And I'm just going to do a quick direct quote here. You know, Roger, you are way behind the times. The guys of the 80s aren't tough. They're sensitive people. Show a little emotion to a woman and shit like that. I think I'm an 80s man. Roger replies, how do you figure? McCaskey, last night I cried in bed. So how's that? Murtaugh, were you with a woman? I was alone. Why do you ask? (laughs) Um, It's such a good quote. It's such a good quote. Um, And I think it's kind of making fun of this new era of masculinity and maybe... Maybe the insecurity that drove, that, that is driving this masculinity that's not the uh, tough action. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I just realized that my gestures are not going to no, play. No, it's very, like, she's doing like a, <laughs> like, let me try to describe this in words, like a stoic Irish jig. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what I imagine leprechauns do when they're trying to imitate what it is to be a masculine leprechaun. <laughs> Leprechauns, the symbol of masculinity. (laughs) At least for Kay. (laughs) In reference to what she just gesticulated with her arms. (laughs) Masculinity is being a jaunty little leprechaun fellow. (laughs) Kay is now crying. (laughs) I'm also trying not to laugh really loudly in the microphone. Um, So yeah. Onto, so you get the contrast of this actual deep depression with the discussion of, well, is this ma- what's this 
what are these emotions with masculinity? And so I, th- I thought that was really interesting um, and a really interesting juxtaposition in this film. No, I think that is a really, really good point. And I also really like the symbol that the bullet becomes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The movie. You know, at the end, there's this scene where he, he gives the hollow bullet to um, Danny Glover. Yeah, he establishes that the hollow bullet is like... He chose this methodically. It's it's what's going to accomplish the the job the best. And not to get super analytical, but it's a hollow bullet because he's hollow inside without the you know his wife that completes him. Right. Right. Ah, that's pretty fucking thin. That's very thin. Yeah. So one of the things I think is really interesting about this movie and this genre of movie as a whole is. So there's this, um, this as you mentioned, that there's a lot of interracial buddy cop movies. So you have things like 48 Hours and Lethal Weapon, where it's black man white, um, and his white partner. And in all of these movies, the black man is the straight man, and the white his white partner is the loose cannon. And in both these movies, you get one of two dichotomies. So it's either that the black man is kind of the urban symbol, so he's, you know, into what the very stereotypical inner city kind of pulling those tropes in. Or you get, as is in this film, you get the person who's so strictly defined. He's so middle class. He's so like, he has the the um, perfectly nuclear, the perfect nuclear family. He has a yacht, not a dog. Um, and I think this is really interesting where this inner, inner raciality comes. Because we, we all know the trope, the old trope where it's, the white man and the savage, where the white man comes to the island and civilizes the savage. But in in these buddy cop movies um, and in Lethal Weapon, you see the white man is the savage. He has the savage masculinity that the black man has lost, and it's regrettable that the his partner has lost it. Like he's bringing the savageness is something of value, um, and kind of like almost, it's almost like an appropriative thing. It's like saying, oh, by putting on this image of the savagery loose cannon breaking the rules. I'm I'm showing you what it means to be a good man, be a good cop. I mean I think I think that's an interesting way to I, I think that's just an interesting transition. No, I agree. Um as you were talking, I was thinking about the cop from Die Hard. Yeah. And I w- was thinking about the possibility of this being like Die Hard fan fiction. And that this film was diehard fan fiction. (laughs) Well, let me let me continue. (laughs) And this is actually like the offsuit of uh, the Family Matters cop, and like what this was like a side, like a a side movie based on him in the same universe. Yeah, but they couldn't get the Family Matters guy, so they got Danny Glover. But I think, I mean, I like that you're expecting something really serious to come out of that. <laughs> no, I do think, but if but if you look, you see this trope also in Die Hard. You see the cop Al is on the ground. He's emasculated from his job, like yeah, like this whole his job as a cop, which is a very traditionally masculine role. He's a desk jockey right now. Yeah, same thing with um, Motok. Motok's pretty much an upper level detective. He doesn't. You get the impression that he doesn't go out in the field that much anymore. Um, so I mean, you he's need too this, old for this shit, Kay. He's too old for this shit. So he, so this savage man, the savage white man, comes in and like shows him what it's like to be hyper masculine again. Yeah. Um, I think that's 
um, from just perspective of race relations and from what perspectives are like the performing masculinity there. Um, and it's interesting, especially in this movie, where it's actually in both this movie and Top Gun, where you have both this savagely masculine man performing hypermasculinity who's also emotionally compromised. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting conversation. No, absolutely. Um, this doesn't at all lend into our next topic. Yeah, there's no good segue. Yeah, so I'm just going to go into it. Um, I've been really excited to talk about this within these movies for the last few. I wanted to talk about it a little bit in Bloodsport, um, but here it is as Lethal Weapon being the foremost Reaganite movie. Reaganic? What's the Reagan as a... I like it sounding like a bomb. So that's why I'm like, Reaganite. Like, do you got any of that good Reaganite bomb? Or like, maybe a grenade. It actually kind of sounds like an energy drink. Reaganite. (laughs) Um, Zero calories, zero sugar, 100% adrenaline. I was about to say it sounds like a drug, but then with Nancy Reagan's passing, it actually makes it really, (laughs) (laughs) really not sensitive at all. No. All right. So, so, so. So just say no to Reaganite. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so Reaganite films um, were films that came along in, you know, obviously the Reagan era. And um, I'm going to kind of set the scene for y'all. All All right. So the movie begins. The movie being Lethal Weapon. If you're not, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about Lethal Weapon. (laughs) So I would probably rewind and start at the beginning because otherwise you're going to be very lost. The movie begins. With what is wrong with America? A beautiful young girl dressed in all white. A pure girl, though she's sexualized and drugged. She commits suicide and is later discovered she was murdered. Her drugs laced with drain cleaner. All right, so this is the opening scene. And it's important because it shows something that has been prominent in another movie we've seen. And I'm pausing for Kay to be like, oh, yeah, right, Die Hard. Oh, yeah, wait, Die Hard. Oh, yeah, Die Hard. I was thinking really any of the movies we've seen. No, it's true. It is Die Hard specifically. Yeah, because, you know, remember the scene with the boss and he's, like, doing cocaine. And just to be clear, I've never done cocaine, but it seems, like, very unhygienic that people are always doing it off these, like, unsanitized surfaces. Yeah, it's real gross. Like, Like, you're snorting something up your nose and you're doing it... I, like, I just want them to be more clean with it. You know, like, I want them to use an all-purpose cleaner <laughs> beforehand. Okay. Lysol the surface yeah. and your credit card before you snort cocaine. Yeah, well, like... And maybe you, the dollar bill, too, because money's, re- like... It's so have, dirty. Yeah, there's a lot of... I mean, if you think about your credit card and how many surfaces it goes through with that, and, like, and then you're Would using Would you lick it. all those surfaces? No. Oh, like, it's basically like licking a bathroom. Okay. <laughs> First issue that I have with doing cocaine off the table is not the cocaine itself, but be more hygienic. Second thing. All right. So the, the boss is in doing it in success. Like, yeah. he has expensive jewelry, and it's showing his love of excess. Um, so these beginning seeds of both of these movies are important because they're setting the stage for the chaos that America has dissolved into after after World War Two. Try Vietnam. And after just kind of the openness of the 1970s. With yeah. like hippies, 1960s, 1960s, 1970s, where there's a lot of free thought, more free thought, a lot more questioning of like the establishment and of norms. The, and the, of dissolve- like second- the dissolvement is dissolvement a word? No. The dissolution 
of America of and the family structure. The family structure and second wave feminism, all of those, all of those um, insecurities come into play. Right. I mean, we're in a world of sex, drugs, and crime. Violence. Violence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it shows an unrest and a need for order. And thank our Jesus, Lord, that there is Reagan coming to restore America to be great again. <laughs> I would laugh, but it scares me. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Um, I just came from a Bernie rally today. I was, I was today. wondering when you were going to put in that, by the way, you breathe the same air as Bernie Sanders today. I, I did. I, I breathe the same air. I feel very empowered, um, like I could go save the world. I think more than anything, Danny DeVito was there. Um, (laughs) which you desperately wanted to tie into lethal weapon in some way (laughs) i did it has nothing to do with lethal weapon okay let me set the scenes for y'all all All right pause we're gonna take a break from reaganite cinema so i can talk to you about dana devito all right so we're there we've been standing in the rain from 5 30 in the morning it is now 11 30 i have only eaten a pop tart for breakfast and i am tired and it's getting a little like I I thought I was imagining it because like I'm I'm to the part of tired where you're like I either want to throw up or I want to cry or maybe throw up and then cry and you're trying to decide what order it is. That like, point where you've like just devolved into being a toddler. Yeah, like you are so tired <laughs> and everyone keeps coming up and speaking and Bernie's still not up there and I'm like, is Bernie actually here? <laughs> like, <laughs> have we I, been tricked by false promises? Like, like, am I imagining this? Is am I being punked right now? <laughs> and then. As I'm doing this, they go, and now we have, and I'm like, Bernie Sanders, Bernie, Danny DeVito. (laughs) (laughs) And in my disillusioned state, I just start hysterically laughing, like bundled over at the top row, laughing so hard that I'm crying, either because I think that I'm hallucinating and I'm probably (laughs) close to death. (laughs) Or... Because I don't understand what's happening in the world. But Danny DeVito comes up on stage and he does this wild gesture. He opens his arms like he's like Jesus and he's going to save us all. And he's like looking at the mic stand like, why are you so tall? Like he's like so mad at the mic stand for being so tall and then he's so short. I understand. I sympathize. I'm 5'2". And then he gets a podium after making wild faces and gestures at the audience. And I'm still laughing because I don't know what's happening. Why is Danny DeVito here? (laughs) And he gets on the podium and he just says, and Bernie Sanders. (laughs) And then he gets off and Bernie Sanders comes up stage. And I'm still looking and thinking, (laughs) what's happening? Did this just happen? Why is Danny DeVito here? Is Bernie Sanders really coming on stage? It's been eight hours. (laughs) So Reaganite Cinema. We are in a world of chaos. Sex, drugs, violence, crime. Okay. And Reagan's here to deliver us, to save us, just like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's going to bring us back to conservative politics. He's going to bring back the the family. He's going to restore us to this idealized America. Our our previous 1950s <clears throat> days when everything was great and hunky-dory. And women couldn't work outside the home or get divorced, divorced their own property and, you know. No, no. It's the 1950s. Legal. It's great. Um, so Lethal Weapon being made in 1987 is at the end of this Reaganite film era, but it still has some really important influences that are clear within the movie. 
Uh, but before we get there, I kind of want to talk about this guy named Robin Wood. He wrote this book called Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan. And he talks about this phenomenon that happened at the 1960s, uh, where there was this callback to conservative politics and conservative ideas, um, because they thought that this was the only way to bring back, you know, bring us back from the destruction of the family, you know, and these cities that are ridden with drugs and violence. I mean, there was a very real cocaine and heroin epidemic during oh, that yeah. time. Like, there was some pretty nasty stuff that went on. Absolutely. But I think, you know, the blame that was shifted there was on, you know, these liberals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, dissolution Perfect. of the family unit is because women are now advocating to work outside the home and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and in this book, Wood says, you know, that there are four common themes with these Reagan-era movies. And it's not just with action movies either. I would like to preface that too. I guess it's not preface. It's more of an epilogue to what I'm saying. Um, which my kids refuse to read. They say it's not part of the book and I disagree. Um, so the four, the first one is Nostalgia for the 1950s. Special effects as seen as magic. And you can see that in like E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's this reassurance about nuclear warfare, which you definitely saw in Top Gun. Absolutely. Um, and then lastly, which applies more to Lethal Weapon, you have this restoring the white father, restoring the family. And, you know, that's kind of what I want to focus on with Lethal Weapon and how you see that within, how you see Lethal Weapon as being a Reagan-era film through that last kind of theme of Reagan movies. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned several times how at the end, Wiggs comes back to the home, back to Murdoch's home. And Murdoch has always been kind of the perfect, they've had the perfect nuclear family. They've been perfect, like a Reagan era family. Um, but obviously Wiggs is not. And Wiggs has lost that family already. He's he's grieving his wife. He's grieving his son. Uh, no, he's just grieving his wife. There's no children involved. We can make up a son. I mean, <laughs> when's the last time these people have watched Lethal Weapon? <laughs> we can probably tell them anything and they'd believe it. Don't backtrack us. <laughs> so he's grieving his wife and his family has been ruined. And he's, I mean, I know we've used the expression loose can a lot, but he's pretty manic um, throughout this whole film. Um, but it, and then it returns, like the circle closes where he returns to this home. He comes for, I mean, the most American of holidays, well, second most American of holidays, Christmas. What would you argue the first, July 4th? Oh, I forgot that existed. Um, no, I was going to say Thanksgiving. Okay, so, um, yeah, you see with him returning for Christmas Day, you see that res restoration of the family. He has become part of the family unit. He brings his dog, not the yacht, <laughs> on Christmas Day um, as his plus one. And, you know, I think that kind of shows, you know, the family's back together. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's... There's definitely an element of healing there. Oh, yeah. The the family has been restored. He has a support system. He's part of this this family unit now. Yeah. And it's actually, like, really heartwarming when you start seeing the sequels and the third and the fourth and the tenth um, Lethal Weapon film. <laughs> There's only four guys. Kay is looking at me very disapprovingly. <laughs> I was going to say, you can't just lie to your audience that way. Um, if, when you see this this family kind of evolve and and... When you get to the fourth one, he's having a child. My heart just warms thinking about it. Um, you also see Reagan-era uh, themes through them being police officers. Um, you know, obviously, we aren't 
restoring the white father in this movie. Um, it's a little bit more progressive than that. Yeah, good job. Um, they have this, you know, interracial cop duo, and it's restoring the father. It's restoring Danny Glover. Um, but we also see it because they're restoring the world. You know, they're trying to take a bite out of crime and take a bite out of the violence and the the drug-ridden corruption within the government, you know, and, and they're restoring the world to this conservative ideal that Reagan is isn't best known for. Is known for, yeah, absolutely. So not only they're restoring the family, they're saving the world. By saving the family? Are we are we making Save the cheerleader, save the world. Save the family. Save the world. Are we arguing that the family in, in Reagan era movies is a microcosm for the broader world? I'm just kind of clarifying here. Oh, um, no, I'm saying when, by them being cops and also saving, like, they're restoring order to the world by, you know, ending this drug trade, this violence, this crime-ridden era. It's more of, like, the city being, restoring the chaos that the cities and and the world has dissolved into post-1960s. And I have two thoughts on that. Okay, first thought. Thought number one is that I think that's a really good point, and I think one of the things I, I see is that in order for the cops in these movies, like Lethal Weapon, like um, Die Hard, like even Top Gun to some extent, um, to perpetuate violence, to and, and these action movies are marked by extreme violence. You know, Wiggs kills 15 people. Um, in order for them to take that extreme violence, the other party, the enemy, has to act first. So I think that's a really interesting interesting thing so they're they're confined by this law and order yeah until the law and order is broken and that makes it permissive for them it's to go like, outside the law they have to like justify the yeah violence. yeah so it's it's justified by the fact that someone was kidnapped that someone was killed in cold blood things like that that a suicide of a beautiful young woman is perpetuated um and i, th- I think that's a really interesting thing when you're talking about how they are restoring the order of the city they're restoring the order of the family Thought two, which is slightly off topic, a lot of the fears in the Reagan era movies is the imposition of of women and and the feminizing of the man. So I, I know that we we did that quote earlier where it's like emotions and shit. Um, but I think part of it is also that mask the masculine bonding that's so prevalent in these movies is as a resistance to infeminist empowerment. So. In, in these movies, in Die Hard and in Lethal Weapon, it's there's, there's no place for women in these movies. So in, in this world, even, it's like Murtaugh's kidnapped daughter and it's McLean's wife that puts them at a disadvantage over their enemies. So it's really reestablishing the masculine, the masculine ideal without the woman. Like there's only enough women in a lot of these movies to ensure that we know that the main character is heterosexual. I really like that point. That's a really, really good point, Kay. So I, I mean, I think I've exhausted everything I had to say about this movie. I'm going to full disclosure. I didn't find this movie nearly as interesting as Die Hard or Bloodsport. Yeah. Watching this, this, I almost said the second time, but that would be lying. The 18th time. (laughs) Give or take. Actually, my favorite lethal weapon uh, out of all of them is probably the third one, which I've watched the most. Um, but it, it was a lot less, uh, action-y. Yeah, that's, a, that's what I thought. Like, there was, was like, like, there was like a good solid 30 minutes. 
um, of action. Um, it seems on. It seems a little bit unbalanced, actually. Like from just a story arc perspective. No, absolutely not. That we're turning this into a movie reveal. The Roger Ebert gave it five stars. Roger Ebert fucking loved this movie. He repaired it. He compared it to fucking Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is a much better movie. No shit. I like was reading the Roger Ebert review, and I'm just like. I mean, you can't argue with Roger Ebert. Like, you can just realize that your opinions have to be wrong. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because Roger Ebert, argue, like, does not agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I love Roger Ebert. Um, I, 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 I did have one more point. Okay. Uh, it was more of a question to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you were running a heroin drug trade, what would your uh, company, like, your secret company name be? Oh, God, I hate you. I hate you when you do this. <laughs> I hate naming things. <laughs> With that, we're going to end this. No, you can't avoid the question. It's important to me. I'm going to leave this question to I have been up since four in the morning waiting for fucking Danny DeVito (laughs) (laughs) to get up on the fucking stage and introduce Bernie Sanders. You have to name me if you're running a heroin secret operation, smuggling business. I'm so tired. I can't even say it correctly. What would your name be? Kay Grossman. You have 30 seconds starting now. Feel the burn. (laughs) (laughs) That's my answer. I think mine would be the golden panda. Is heroin gold? No. No. The white panda. Ooh. The white tiger. The keep coming up with names. Let's go until we fade out. The Um, we um, we actually have outro things to do. Oh shit. Notes. (laughs) So our producer wrote notes that we have to say. I'm actually being held under slavery. (laughs) He says that I can't eat until we finish this podcast because we're now two days late. And I'm starving. Also, after you get like weird chewy noises. Um, when he said, you eat. yeah, he said I couldn't eat before the podcast because it ruins my perfect podcast voice. So I'm actually in a lot of pain right now. It's been really hard. Today. <laughs> I'm also slightly intoxicated. I think that's obvious. So <laughs> outro. Let's so do guys, it. So if you want to find us, we are on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On Facebook and Twitter, you can find us under Mansplaining Podcast. On Instagram, you can find us under our podcast network, River City Archery Club. You can also find us at mansplainingpodcast.com. So as we mentioned, we're part of the River City Archery Club network. You can listen to us with the print and play cast. If print and play board games are your thing, that's hosted by Ryan and Ian. We also have a new podcast called Quest Bound and Quest Down and Bound. I wanted to do Quest this. Bound and Down. Anyhow, um, it's our new RPG podcast where we play Star Wars Edge of Empire and we have um, starring Granny Bombasa. You forgot your Star Wars name, Granny Bombasa. And I have no idea what my name Leanne. is. Oh, my name is Leanne, um, and I play a traveling singer, bounty hunter, who wants to spread peace. And I play a, a badass granny. We also have FX, a, dro- a droid friend. Um, we have Margo, the washed-up holodrama star. And Ian plays Boxnaw and with his lizard pipe. <laughs> it's all... Poor Jacob. It's like hurting cats with us. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jacob is our game master. So if that's at all interesting to you, I think we're really funny. I'm biased. Um, but listen to it at questbounddown.com. Our theme music, as always, is provided by Kenny Kenny OO from their self-titled EP. It's add 60 seconds to the bestial test. Um, you can find them at kennykennyoho.bandcab.com. 
And as always, remember to join the conversation on Facebook. What would you name your heroin smuggling drug company? Guys? <laughs> Have a nice day. Da 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 da